In November 1789, some of you remember this. This is your childhood. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to Jean-Baptiste Leroy. Leroy. I'm not a great rolling my R's guy. Which contained a now famous statement. Some of you may actually know this. Some of you may have no idea. He was talking about the Constitution being finished up in the United States. And he said this in this letter. He, he says, but in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. So some of you have heard that phrase before. You might not have known where it came from. You might not have heard it said quite exactly that way. But that's what Benjamin Fra Franklin said. There's nothing in this world that can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And as I was reading this particular passage of Scripture preparing for this morning, I entitled my message, Death and Taxes, because actually death and taxes are talked about in this passage. But they're more significant than a statement that Benjamin Franklin writes to a French friend over in France. And so we're going to look at Matthew 17, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. And we're introduced right into this particular passage, something that Jesus says to his disciples. Now, just prior to this, if you went looked back, you would see that Jesus had um, delivered uh, an individual from demon possession. Before that, Jesus and um, his closest, his, his kind of inner circle of disciples went up on a mountain, and those disciples had an opportunity to see the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. They had a chance to see Jesus, a glimpse of his glory. And they were just floored by that. They were impacted hugely by that. And so there's some significant events that have happened just before this, but it kind of gives us a setting here for what's going to happen next. Jesus and his disciples have kind of been away from Capernaum. They've been in the greater Galilean area for a while doing ministry and experiencing some of these things. And as they make their way back towards Capernaum, there's some key things that happen at the end of this chapter. And we, we dive right into chapter uh, 17, verse 22. It says this, As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, and this, this is what Jesus says. Jesus gives us one of the two realities that Benjamin Franklin was astute enough to figure out. He says, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. Jesus addresses first and foremost the first reality, the first certainty that we know in life, and that's death. Jesus actually predicts for his disciples his death on the cross of Calvary. He says, I just want you to have a heads up, fellas, that I am going to be betrayed, that I am going to be arrested, that I am going to be crucified, and then I'm going to rise again. The whole concept, the whole idea of Jesus being arrested, betrayed into the hands of another pa in another uh, passage of Scripture in the Gospels, it, it says evil men or wicked men, but the whole idea that he's going to be killed, it crushed them to hear that. Because even now they were struggling and wrestling with what, God, what Jesus came to do. And yet Jesus says, I just want you to know that there is a reality coming, and that reality is that I'm going to die. We as human beings understand that reality. We know that there's going to come a day when our life on this earth ends. 
That doesn't catch us by surprise, that, that, that understanding. We might not want to face it. We not, might not like the idea of it. We might not want to talk about it, but we know it's true. We know it's a reality, and Jesus starts off by sharing with, him, with these disciples the fact that, guys, I, I want you to know I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise again. It's interesting that they were deeply dis- distressed. I think they missed the last part. Maybe they thought that that was a little too much for them to even kind of grasp, but they could grasp the fact that Jesus was going to die. But it deeply distressed them. They were upset by hearing that. And you might think, well, why is this kind of thrown in here right before the next event that happens? You might be surprised how well these things go together and how Matthew records these things, and I hope that I will bring that clarity to you as we work through it. But the first reality Jesus talks about is his death. And as they're mulling this over, they continue to travel on, and in verse 24 it says, when they came to Capernaum, And so now they're back in the Capernaum area. It says, those who collect temple tax, the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? So now we've got the second reality of life, the second certainty of life. We had death, and now we've got taxes. Now, it's important that we understand something that's going on here. This tax that's being talked about in this particular passage of Scripture is a very specific tax. It is not a Roman tax. It's not a head tax. It's not the tax that Jesus was confronted with by the Pharisees when they were trying to catch him and, and trick him by saying, hey, should we pay, render to Caesar? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That was a, a head tax. That was a census tax. That was a tax that was put on everybody by the Roman officials, and Jesus dealt with that. When he says, hey, whose inscription's on that, render Caesar what's Caesar's, render God what's God's. This tax was a very specific tax. It was a Jewish tax. It's called the temple tax here. This is a tax that was actually given by God to the children of Israel back in Exodus. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 30. It's actually called the atonement money or the atonement tax. I want you to not forget that phrase. The atonement tax, the atonement money. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to register them, each of the men must pay a ransom for his life to the Lord as, he, as they are registered. Remember these statements. They connect so well with what Jesus just got done saying to, the children, or to his disciples, what Jesus is going to talk about as he goes on. Then no plague will come on them as they are registered. Everyone who is registered must pay a half shekel according to the sanctuary, excuse me, the sanctuary shekel. This half shekel is a contribution to the Lord. Each man who is registered between 20 years old and more, it's actually about 20 to 50 years of age, those that age group had to pay, must give this contribution to the Lord. The wealthy may not pay more and the poor may not pay less than half a shekel when giving the contribution to the Lord to atone for your lives. From back in the time of Moses, God commands this atonement tax, this temple tax. It was to go towards the sanctuary. It was originally 
to go towards the tabernacle. Then ultimately it was applied to the temple. It was paid through the exile in Babylon when there was no temple. It was paid while that, when that temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. It was, that temple tax was paid all the way up to Jesus' time. In fact, that temple tax was paid until the time that the, the, the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Interestingly enough, that temple tax was paid past that. At that point, the Romans take, took it from the Israelites and put it towards a pagan temple. But in Jesus' day, it was a temple tax that was paid by the men from 20 years of age to 50 years of age. It was a tax that God had put on the children of Israel, and it was called the atonement money. And as they enter Capernaum, it was that time of year, about a month out before Passover, that they began to collect this temple tax. And since Jesus and his disciples had been away from Capernaum for a bit, when they entered back into the, the community, that's when the tax collectors were ready to go and to say, hey, wait a second, aren't you supposed to be paying this tax? You haven't paid your tax yet. And right off the bat, the question comes to Peter, Maybe it's because Peter was recognized as kind of the, the, the leader among the disciples. Maybe the person knew Peter as he was entering back into town. We're not giving any of those specifics. But the tax collectors approach Peter, and they ask this question. He says, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Not necessarily implying that Jesus doesn't pay it, but just that, hey, have, aren't you guys going to pay that tax? Don't you, doesn't, doesn't your teacher pay that tax? Don't you pay that tax? Don't, aren't you guys all supposed to submit this? There's three things that in this passage I want us to just kind of see. First, the reality of life here. Reality of life is that we do have obligations while we live on this planet. And one of them is taxes. And that Peter was confronted, as the rest of the disciples and Jesus were, that the reality of life here is that for them in this moment, they had to pay a tax. This tax was a tax that every man had to pay. And that they're reminded of the reality of life here on earth, that that's part of life, is that I have obligations here. As we work through, Jesus is going to talk to his disciples about the reminder of their citizenship their true citizenship, and we're going to be reminded of our citizenship as believers in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, I want to wrap up by talking about the reservoir of God's provision. So we're, re we're confronted with the reality of our life here, we're reminded of our citizenship, and we are reminded of the reservoir of God's provisions. Continue to see what happens here. So Peter's confronted, hey, does your teacher pay this tax? And what does Peter say right off the bat? Yes. Yes, of course he does. Going back to the conversation that he had had with the, the Pharisees and confronted about the Roman taxes, what did Jesus say? Render to Caesar what's Caesar, and render to God's what, what's God's. Yes, pay taxes. If this is what the, the, the governing authorities are asking for, expecting, then yes. If this is what God had commanded the children of Israel to do, the men of the children of Israel to do, then yes, of course. Of course the teacher pays taxes course we pay taxes. For Peter, it's kind of a no-brainer just to automatically answer that question. Yes. He didn't think about it. He doesn't hesitate. He just says yes. 
And as Peter enters into the house where Jesus and the rest of the disciples were, Jesus approaches Peter right off the bat and, and addresses Peter. Before Peter has an opportunity to talk to Jesus, it's likely that Peter was probably going to come into the house and say, Jesus, I, I just want to tell you about the interaction I just had. Like these guys were asking whether or not you pay the temple tax or not. Isn't that absurd? But Peter doesn't even get that out before Jesus approaches him and he says, when he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. And this is what Jesus says. I want you to start thinking about it because Jesus is really now going to start drilling down on his sonship. The fact that he's the son of God and as a disciple of the son of God, where Peter stands... And I believe that Peter is going to think back on this when Peter talks about the topic of adoption and, and who we are in Christ as Christians in 1 Peter. And we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2 in a minute. But this is what Jesus says. He says, what do you think, Simon? So he catches her right off the bat. I, I, it's either that Jesus either overheard the conversation or Jesus knew the conversation had happened even though he wasn't around to hear it. Kind of of the opinion that Jesus knew that this conversation had, was had even if he wasn't around. That Jesus had penetrating knowledge of that conversation and he wants to address this topic with Peter as soon as Peter enters the house. And he says, what do you think, Peter? From whom do earthly kings collect their tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Now think about that question for a second. Jesus says, from whom do earthly kings collect their tariffs or their taxes? At this point in history, in, in history, in the days prior to Jesus, in the years, centuries prior to Jesus, with few exceptions, the governments of the world in Jesus' day and before were autocratic governments. There were governments that were, were headed up by kings or emperors or pharaohs. And those autocratic governments extracted taxes from their subjects or from their defeated foes. And these governments, these kings, these rulers exempted their family members. Why? Because their family members were beneficiaries of the taxes that were taken. And so Jesus knew that that was the standard. Peter knew that that was the standard. And he asked the question, hey, when it comes to taxes, Peter... Who is it that is exempt from that? Who is it that pays the taxes? Do the sons pay the taxes or do the strangers pay the taxes? And of course, Peter knows what the answer to the question is. In verse 26, he says, from the strangers, he said. Why is Jesus asking such a strange question? You would think that he would just say, hey, Peter, let's just pay that tax and get it done with. Well, Jesus is already made it abundantly clear to the children of Israel that he is the Son of God. Jesus is already, at the very beginning of his, his earthly ministry, walked into the temple, seen the money changers, see the trade and, and, and the stuff that was going on in, in order for people to be able to buy animals to sacrifice at Passover time. And what did Jesus do? Jesus was angry at the fact that there was hypocrisy going on, that there was cheating going on. And he says, you have made my father's house in, from a house of prayer to a den of thieves. He says, my father's house. He's talking about the fact that he is the son of God, that he is the Lord of that temple. 
He's already made that abundantly clear to the, anybody that was in the temple to hear. If anybody was exempt from paying the tax, who would be exempt? Jesus. It's his father that laid down the tax. Jesus says, hey, as the son, I'm not obligated to pay this tax. And actually because Peter was a follower of Jesus Christ, that he was adopted into the family of God, he was also exempt from paying that tax, technically. And yet, this is what Jesus says. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we don't offend them. Notice it doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, so that I don't offend them, I'm not going to pay that tax. He says, so that we don't offend them, we're going to pay this. We see that Jesus is considerate to those who are extracting the tax. Those people might not understand what's going on. The word offend there, so that we don't offend them, is so that we don't cause them to stumble, that we don't cause these people to sin. Jesus says, so that we don't cause these people to sin because they don't understand all of this. He said, we're going we're gonna to take care of this. Now, the temple tax was a half shekel tax. Um, it was uh, called a, 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 a two drachma tax. Um, that's kind of how it worked. Um, two, there wasn't a real half shekel back then. They, they rarely minted the shekel anyway in this particular time period. And so there is a, a, a coin in that day called a stater, S-T-A-T-E-R. It was two half shekels, so it was a full shekel. And that's where Jesus gets into this reservoir of God's provision because he said, so that we don't offend these people, so that we don't cause them to sin, and we don't cause them to stumble, because they don't understand that the son is exempt. And that those in the family of God are exempt from this. We're going to pay it. And so then he tells Peter to go out and he says, but so that we don't offend, go to the sea, cast the f in a fish hook, take the first fish that you catch, and when you open the mouth, you'll find a coin in your Bible, and actually might say stater. It's a full shekel coin. And he says, take it and give it to them for me and for you. Jesus says, we're going to pay the, the, the tax, and actually, I'm going to pay that tax for you. I'm going to pay it out of the reservoir of my generosity. We're not told whether or not Peter does it. The, the inference is, is that he follows what Jesus tells him to do. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. What captivated me about this particular passage of Scripture originally was the miracle. What a strange thing for Jesus to say to Peter to do. He could have, you know, just said, hey, go to, go to Judas. He's got the money bag. Just pull it a stater and, and, and pay that for us. But that's not what he tells him to do. And where I came across this particular passage originally in my study was being reminded again of expecting God-sized things. And I still think this is a God-sized thing. Who goes down to the water and looks for their, temp, their, their temple tax money in the mouth of a fish. And I love what Adam Clark says about this provision because this is definitely God's provision here. This is from the reservoir of God's provision. This is only th something that only God can do. And you know what? Peter would have had to have had the faith in Christ 
to do this. He would have had to have trusted that what Christ said was going to happen was going to happen. And this is what Adam Clark says. He says, if the stator was in the mouth or belly of the fish before, who can help admiring the wisdom of Christ that discovered it there? So if that, that fish had that coin already in it, Jesus in his infinite wisdom already knew it was there. But then he goes on, he says, if it was not there before in the mouth of the fish, then who can help admiring the power of Christ that impelled the fish to go where the stator had been lost in the bottom of the sea, take it up and come towards the shore where Peter was fishing. And with the stator in its mouth or stomach, catch hold of the hook that was to draw it out of the water. Think about that for a second. But then Adam Clark goes on. He says, but suppose that there was no stator there, which is as likely as otherwise, then Jesus created it for the purpose, and here his omnipotence is shown, for to make a thing exist that did not exist before is an act of unlimited power, however small the thing itself may be. No matter what, from this miracle, we see the wisdom of Christ, we see the omnipotence of Christ, we see the amazingness of Jesus Christ. But you know what? As great as that miracle is, I don't want us to miss the real miracle here, the miraculous thing that really is, is what's being talked about. Jesus didn't, by coincidence, talk about his upcoming death on the cross prior to this interaction. I firmly believe that what he predicted just before these events and what he instructed Peter in this instance all goes together. See, they were paying a tax that was called the atonement tax. It was a tax paid by males of, of the children of Israel to the temple. It was a, a portion of money that as Exodus says, Moses in Exodus says, each man is, is registered 20 years of age and more must give this contribution. The wealthy may not pay more, the, the, the poor may not pay less this half shekel when giving the contribution to the Lord to atone for your lives. But you know what? That tax wasn't going to save them from their sin. But Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary, Jesus was the atonement. Yes, it was a tax, it was a debt that they had to pay to the temple each year as the children of Israel. But the real debt that they had was the debt of sin that they had to Almighty God. And who paid that debt? Jesus Christ paid that debt. Jesus was the real atonement, the real atonement money, so to speak, for the children of Israel, for you and for me. Jesus paid that debt. Jesus was talking about what he was going to do on the cross of Calvary to bring about salvation for sins for anyone who would believe in him. And when somebody trusts the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are adopted into the family of God. We become sons and daughters of God. 
And I believe that when Peter was writing in Second Peter, in First Peter chapter two, he had this in mind, this interaction with Jesus in the in, in the in the Gospel of Matthew, this this interaction about the temple and the temple tax. I believe that G, that Peter probably had this in mind when he was talking about this in Second Peter or in First Peter chapter two, in verse nine he says this. But you talking to the to the Christians here, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, we are sons and daughters of God. I don't think that we can stress this enough, that this is a very important point. Our world, and you hear it from people on a regular basis, apply the phrase children of God. Hey, we're all children of God. To anybody and everybody. That is not true. That is not biblically accurate. Simply because we are a human being doesn't make us a child of God. As a human being, we are created in God's image we are image bearers of God, but we are not children of God until we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Then we become children of God. Then we become what Peter describes here, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. When Peter writes these things, he's actually appealing back to Isaiah 43 and Exodus 19. When he talks about a chosen race, he's applying this to Christians in Asia Minor and ultimately to all Christians because of our common faith in Christ regardless of our physical background. Where the children of Israel were God's chosen people and they were a specific, specific race of people, Christians are no longer a specific race of people. We are people who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We are chosen by God. We are a royal priesthood. We oftentimes think that that means that we're supposed to offer up sacrifices or something like the Old Testament priests. That's not really what he's talking about here. A royal priesthood mainly how Christians relate to God, to be holy, to offer sacrifices to God. We are to live as Christians, lives completely set apart to God, offering our entire lives as a sacrifice to God. Ask yourself the question, what is it that God's asking you to sacrifice for him? Ask yourself as a Christian, am I really sacrificing much for God? Right? Yes, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. Yes, I desire to live for God. But God's been asking me to do this here. The Holy Spirit's been really laying on my heart to do this. And I've really been reluctant to do that because I know that that's a sacrifice. Except that as a royal priesthood, as believers in Jesus Christ, that's what our lives are supposed to look like. Sacrificial lives. Putting away what I want for what God wants. Following the example that Christ set for us when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, saying, not my will, but what yours is, God, what your, that your will be done. Is there something in your life that God has really been hammering, with you, hammering on you about that you should really be sacrificing, that you should be really giving up for him, and you're going, mm, I'm not sure if I really want to do that. 
See, a Christian's life is to exemplify that kind of sacrificial commitment to the Lord. We're called a holy nation. Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, together under a new covenant, we are to live as a holy people, set apart from sin and set apart to God, which begs the question, am I living a holy life before God? Is there sin in my life that I've been kind of coddling, that I've been allowing to just be there, to entertain when God's saying, no, you need to get that sin out of your life. You need to confess that. You need to turn from that. You need to live separated from that. For my honor and for my glory, are you doing that? Am I doing that? Are we representing ourselves as a holy nation before God? It says, as God's special possession. This idea comes from those two particular passages. It's a people brought from exile by God, no longer slaves to sin. Peter has this in view, in, in view, salvation and transformation of God's people, that we have been saved and that God is transforming us into the image of his son, and that one day that transformation will be fully complete in glory. Are you allowing God to continue to work on you and transform you into the image of his son? Are the people around us looking at our lives as us who call ourselves children of God, followers of Jesus Christ, saying, you know what, that person, I've known them for years. They were like this before, but they trusted Christ as Savior, and they're like this now. They are not the same person that they were. I was talking to an individual this week, and we were just talking about salvation and talking about how at times as Christians we wrestle with assurance of our salvation. And we talked in that conversation about, you know, have you seen a transformation in your life? Have others seen a transformation in your life? And this person, um, and in, really in, in just an excited way, and it was exciting for me to hear, they said, you know what, people that I talk to, people that know me really well, they say that God has done a, a work in my life. They've seen a transformation. I'm like, see? That right there is God using them to remind you and encourage you that, yes, your salvation is genuine. They knew. They could tell me when they trusted Christ as their Savior. But they were wrestling with that. Sometimes we have that wrestle with assurance. I think the enemy tries to attack us on that, try to get us to doubt that. And yet the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a reminder, is an assurance, it's an encouragement to us that, yes, Jesus has saved me. Yes, I am a new creation in Christ. And then lastly, Peter talks about the fact that we are people of God's mercy. I just want to finish this passage. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You, are not, you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want you to see why that's so significant. Peter is alluding back to Hosea chapter 2. And in Hosea chapter 2, Jesus, or God says this to the children of Israel and to Hosea. He says, I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion or mercy on Lo-Ruhama, which is one of Hosea's children, and that name means no compassion or no mercy. God says, Hosea, I want you to name your child no mercy because I have no mercy on you anymore. As the, children of, as the children of Israel. See, the children of Israel have gotten so sinful and they have walked away from God to the point where he's like, you know what, I'm no longer going to have mercy on these people. 
And then Hosea had another child with Gomer, and God says, name that child Lo-Ami, which is not my people. And God says, you know what, because of your sin, because you've walked away from me, you know what, you're no longer my people. That was what God says to help the children of Israel understand where they had, where, how far they had fallen from their relationship with God. And yet God says this, you know what, I'm going to have com- compassion on no compassion. I'm going to say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. We sang about the fact that God's mercy is great. Our sin is great. God's mercy is greater. You know what? As children of God, we have received mercy from God. Because the atoning work of Jesus Christ. God has poured out his mercy on us. Peter ends that statement, this passage, by saying this, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles, because we are citizens of heaven, but we are called exiles or strangers here. This is what he says. As Christians, as exiles here, he says, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day that he visits. What's Peter's instruction to the children of God? He says, you know what? You need to stay away from sin and you need to live for God in such a way that even when people try to slander you, when God comes back, to judge the sinful people on the day of his visitation, that they'll say, you know what? Those Christians, they were living for God. They were honoring God. They were living right. They were living the way that God told them to live. They were setting the example of what a follower of God looks like. The reason why it's so important, I think, to finish off with that is this. We talked about two realities of life, death and taxes. We're not really worried about the taxes part, except that, you know what, as Christians, because there are taxes that we have to pay, there are obligations that we have on this earth, as Christians who are serving God faithfully and being obedient to him, we render to Caesar what Caesar's. I've heard of Christians that talk about not paying their taxes or doing this or doing that to kind of skirt the system. I believe that that's totally wrong. That's not honorable before God. And as Christians, we need to be living honorable lives before God while we're here on this earth. Setting an example to others that are watching us, this is what Jesus looks like. This is what a Christian really looks like. This is what someone who follows God looks like. But the reality that I really want us to be reminded of this morning, for those that are here and those that might be walking at Jing online, that if you aren't a Christian, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can't avoid the reality that was mentioned at the very beginning. That one day your life on this earth is going to come to an end, you're going to die. And that you're going to stand before Almighty God and He's going to judge you according to your sin. And that the only way that you are not going to spend eternity in hell is if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross as your atoning sacrifice, who took your sin on himself 
and bore the wrath of Almighty God to save you from your sin, to rescue you, to bring you out of the slave market of sin and make you a child of God. I urge you this morning, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Become a child of God. Experience that forgiveness of sins that you know that you have that certainty that you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. Do that this morning. Christians, let's live lives that are pleasing to God while we're here. Living in such a way that no matter what, if, if unsaved people slander us or speak ill of us, that doesn't matter. We're going to live honorably before God. And make no mistake, our world will slander us. Even now in our culture, if we stand up for what the Bible teaches when it comes to things like even sexuality, even the way that the people decide that they're going to live their lives sexually, if we stand up for the, what the Word of God actually teaches, we are now called names, we are called evil, immoral, and all the like. So it does happen. It is happening. Are we willing as Christians to stand by what God's word says and say, no, this is the way I'm going to live no matter what people say about me, no matter what names I get called, no matter how I get treated in my workplace. Even if my family doesn't want to have anything to do with me anymore, I'm going to serve God and live wholly sacrificially. May we do that as Christians.